Welcome to episode 372 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a grand conversation with poet, novelist, biographer, screenwriter, and critic, among other things, the great Jay Perini. We discuss his new book, Borges and Me, An Encounter, about politics and the pandemic. It's a grand conversation, as I mentioned. I think you'll enjoy it with Jay Perini on today's program. We have a new Uncle Cesare essay by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, titled O for Mode, an EW essay called Hero, and a poem titled Witness. And of course, as is always the case, all of this will be infused and imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 372 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Oh, 
Hero. The Tao, the way, sitting on the dock of the bay, wondering aloud what makes some so proud to be wearing a uniform and carrying a gun, waiting for another moment when they see you run so that their state-sanctioned power could be unleashed, exercised in the name of law and order, no matter the mispronunciation, no matter the breach. I despise hearing and watching the beasts. Many people bow their heads down and obey, for these are so-called heroes, no questions. Thank them for their service. Pray up to God. The way, the Tao, my mama says, wow, you must be joking me. How can this behavior be tolerated, this sort of action accepted, champion exonerated? Who are we? She taught me how to be a rebel. Over and over again, this misery, without regard for the truer history, Borges, Vidal, Neruda, and Buddha, sissy young Missy, run around Sioux looking for a provocative milieu, the poetry of Scotland through the eyes and lips of Argentinian upbringing, as a coal cracker's grandkid takes notes while driving them both around, unbound, in an old beat-up jeep. When the right times come, their words illuminate deep the essence of love. As they push back against injustice rising above human misbegotten momentums, as they speak truth to power with the lasting penetrating verve of our truer heroes, activist artists, the best of humanity, sans the profanity of corporal torture and ceaseless punishment, and for what? I truly do not know. You shan't need to bow down, though, to a hero.
Hello, Lawrence. Hello, Jay Perini. It's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours again. I'm glad to be on. I'm, well, it's such a great show. I'm glad to hear you know, you're finding your audience. That's what's important. Well, it's because we have people like you on the show, really. I think that's a large part of it. We have some great guests. Thank you for helping us out. Anytime. I'm always here to be on your show. Oh, that means a lot. Um, now, before we get started, for those of you who do not know who I am speaking with, it's Jay Perini. He is a poet, a novelist, a biographer, screenwriter, and critic. Uh, he and I both have a, a, a connection in a way via the uh, hometown that we come from. We both come from northeastern Pennsylvania. And uh, now I believe you're in Vermont. Is that correct? I've been in Vermont for 40 years, but uh, I'm from Pittston and Scranton, yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Excellent. Me too, that general area. And um, you have a new book coming out uh, titled Borges and Me, an Encounter, about a week-long road trip you had in the highlands of Scotland with the, the great Argentinian novelist Jorge Luis Borges. And uh, we're going to talk about that a bit. We'll also talk mm -hmm. about the pandemic, and I, I'd like to talk about George Floyd, if you don't mind. Uh, you I'd know, love talk, I'd love to talk about George Floyd. I would love to. Um, I should. Why, why don't we start? We could even start with George Floyd because it's so present in our life right at this very moment. Okay, let's let's do that. Now, what do you think about uh, what? I mean, I, I could imagine you're upset, but. In a broader sense, when you look at police in the United States of America, violence in the United States of America, what do you think about what George Floyd shows us again? Well, it's the same thing. I mean, we saw it with Eric Garner in New York. We saw it with, uh, we've seen it with um, so many incidents around the country that we know about ever since we've been able to video um, the shootings of black American men, mostly by um, white police officers, mostly. Um, it's, it's, to me, I mean, a kind of symptom of the um, deep, deep, deep and almost intractable racism uh, that's, that's just part and parcel of American life um, and has been from the time of slavery. Uh, we never recovered from Reconstruction. I mean, during Reconstruction, there were nearly 5,000 recorded lynchings between uh, 1870, the mid-1870s and uh, 1968, uh, the NAACP records, I think it's 4,800 plus uh, lynchings in that period that were noted down, uh, how many weren't noted. Uh, but then there have just been countless murders uh, of black men in America. And, you know, it's, you know, it's, I don't want to blame the police. Um, yes, you blame the specific policemen. And you have to say that uh, the training out in Minnesota and, and elsewhere has to be pretty lax and, and horrific. If, I mean, I watched that video minutes after it was released yesterday uh, of, uh, of, of Floyd George, and um, I was really shocked by, um, you know, nine minutes the policeman had his knee on the guy's neck while he's pleading not to be murdered. And he was murdered in plain view, and I hope that uh, he gets, uh, you know, life in prison. Um, but, um, not that I want to be punitive, but I think, you know, we need to send vivid messages to all police and people in authority that they cannot, with impunity, we cannot be seen to be having state-sanctioned murders going on in this country. 
So it's truly horrific. But I think one has to step back for a moment and say two things I want to say about this. First of all, it's part of a wider, deeper racism, and it's not really just the police. It's, it's everywhere. And black men in America especially have to suffer the daily thousand indignities of being a black man in America. You know, you walk by a woman, a white woman on the street, and she clutches her purse. You go into the supermarket to buy uh, groceries, and they ask for three forms of ID. Um, uh, people get up on the subway and move on to the other side of the, of the aisle because they don't want to sit next to you. Uh, uh, I've talked to a lot of black uh, students and, and friends, and they say, you know, you white people can hardly even begin to appreciate the level of daily indignities that um, go, go forward. Um, but um, that are happening. But then the second thing I want to say is I do think that there is a an important response here, which I'm not seeing much talked about, and that's white anger. And I don't think we're going to see this situation change, racism, deep racism, until we move from uh, sympathy with um, people who are the other or not us to anger with them. And that's a stage in a process that moves towards the goal of social justice. But without the stage of white anger, we're not going to get, yeah, black anger. We've got plenty of that now. We had a riot in Minnesota last night, as well there should have been. But um, I think white anger is what has to happen right now. That's what's necessary. Yeah, and you, you don't believe we're, you're seeing enough of it. I mean, there are some people who are white folks who are angered by this, but not enough. I don't. I don't think nearly enough. I mean, are, 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 you, are you saying, do you feel like there's enough? I mean, what do you think? No, I agree with you. I just wanted to be clear about it. Um, I, yeah, I yeah. I think folks in in the white community just at at best say nothing. You know, some of them will actually start ridiculing this whole idea of black Black Lives Matter and and start saying silly things like White yeah. Lives Matter too, and not getting the the, yeah. the as you said the endemic racism in this country. Yeah, and I don't think we we most white people have not fully taken on board the kind of infinitely uh, ingrained levels of racism in American life. I mean, it just, it's profound, it's deep, and because it's so profound and deep, it's completely un invisible. And to the white people who are racist, it's completely, they, they're always shocked and outraged to hear anybody say, oh, I, have, I don't have a racist bone in my body, they'll say. <laughs> right. They, they, don't under, they don't understand the, how, how invisible it is to the people who are racists. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I, I would I would venture to say we're we're all a bit racist. You know, just the subjectivity in which we look at at the world uh, is is racist. Yeah, I don't exempt, and believe me, I don't exempt myself. I'm trying to root it out of myself, but right. uh, and I recognize it as part part of of American life and culture, which I was which I was raised with. You know, so I'm I'm part, I'm I'm race I'm a racist. I, every, it's hard not to be, yeah. but then you have to deal with it. You even get angry with yourself for being racist. And then you have to move towards social justice on a very profound level. Now, our um, present uh, occupier of, of the White House, has he said anything about, I haven't heard him say anything about Mr. Floyd passing. Well, I don't, I don't think he'll mention Mr. Floyd. I think that's not going to be on his agenda. Uh, you know, obviously, we've, I mean, again, Trump is just a symptom of a larger problem. But, but what a vivid symptom. I mean, there is a there is a to have such an explicit racist in the White House is to me truly, truly shocking. It doesn't surprise me that 97 percent of African-Americans in this country are are planning to vote 
for George for for Biden next time. Um, um, really, it's crazy to to have such a man in the White House. I mean, he 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 delivers a daily outrage, if not five. I mean, his language he he's so unconscious. I mean, to have a child in the White House is just too um, shocking for a country of this dignity and size. Uh, yeah, I agree. And, you know, you, you make me think of a recent comment made by Biden that kind of connects to what we're talking about. I'm, I'm curious to, to hear what you think about it. Uh, when he mentioned to uh, the African-American radio uh, interviewer that if you're uh, black or if you support Trump, then you're not black. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, well, I think he's, he was exaggerating. But I think, you know, I didn't take offense to it. I mean, I thought it was what he was saying was absolutely on the mark. Uh, you you could you could um, you know I think you can take umbrage and 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 say yeah it was a badly made joke in the wrong moment, but I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with it. I mean I do think that um, there are you know three percent of black people in America do support Donald Trump, and I think those that three percent of of African Americans must uh, be very um, you know blind to their own <laughs> mis mistaken uh, feelings here. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I look at anybody who was um, part of this country as as uh, as a, a fellow citizen, and and though we don't sure. share the exact same history, our our histories are intertwined. And for me to look at a fellow citizen uh, who is of African American uh, heritage and background experience, and and they support someone like Trump, I have to ask that fellow citizen, do, do you not know our history? Yeah, absolutely. And most Americans, I mean, this is, as Gore Vidal once said, the United States of amnesia. Right. And uh, Americans, Americans have a very limited awareness of their own history. It's shocking uh, what they don't know. I mean, I mean, what, what they don't know would fill vast libraries. And it makes for a very difficult democracy when you don't when you have such a poor education system, which is what we do have in this country, a, a relatively fragile um, educational system. And you know now you've got a secretary of education in there, uh, Nancy DeVos, who's doing going to do her best to suppress good education in this country, just as the Republican Party is going to do its best to uh, to, to disrupt or suppress votes. I mean, voter yeah. suppression it is voter fraud on the highest level. And Republicans are the ones internally most guilty of Republicans. I mean, and again, uh, I don't want to condemn. I think it's very important always to, to understand why people voted for Trump, why so many um, working class white people, such as the group I was born and raised among. I mean, I come from a working class Scranton family. You know, my family were miners and, and telephone repairmen. And uh, my father was a gas station attendant for many, many years. And uh, my parents only went to the ninth grade, eighth grade. Uh, I grew up among white, working class um, people in Scranton, Pennsylvania. You know, my mother was a friend of Mrs. Biden, Joe Biden's mother. That's my mother used to great. babysit. My, my mother used to babysit Joe Biden when he was like two and three years old. <laughs> that's fantastic. So it's hilarious. It's just hilarious. Uh, so. Um, have no, you had the opportunity to tell him that yet? Have you had the opportunity to speak with him about that? If I ever run into Joe Biden, I'm going to say, you know, I haven't seen you since you were four years old, but um, three years old, but you're looking good for the. <laughs> <laughs> I have some. I, I hope I one day have the chance to say, you know, my mother was Verna Clifford, who was your uh, babysitter. 
That's fantastic. We're talking to Jay Perini, who is the son of Joe Biden's uh, babysitter, as well as a poet, novelist, biographer, screenwriter, and critic. Uh, let's, um, let, let's, I mean, you, you started us into politics, uh, a bit, uh, you were talking about the Republicans, uh, did, where did you want to take that? Are you, I mean, do you have no, uh, affinity for anybody in the Republican party right now? Are there you know, any good I ones? Do, I, I'm very fond of Mitt Romney. I think Mitt Romney is a very honorable man and I've been impressed, um, from the time he ran for president until now. I think he's been an honest, um, ma- honest man, and um, and in many ways, I don't have it in for Republicans in the sense that, uh, you know, my father, who was a working class Scranton guy, was a Republican his whole life for the most part. Uh, interestingly enough, but he was in the old-fashioned cloth coat, um, small government, uh, gentle Republicanism uh, that you might say goes back to Abraham Lincoln. There's nothing wrong with. That and you know, in at its in its heart of hearts, republicanism is not nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's a belief in the in the public thing, in Latin res publica, the mm. public thing, and it's a devotion to the public corporate reality, and that's what the Republican Party was. That's why they chose their name, a devotion to the corporate reality of the people, and it's then and so the fact that the Republicans have lost a view of their origins is not my problem; it's their problem. But, you know, there, I think there's plenty of, I mean, for instance, Governor Phil Scott in Vermont right now is an excellent uh, politician, an, a very moral, strong leader in, a good, in the best way. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, I will, I will, like, I probably will vote for the Republican governor of Vermont next time because he's done such a great job with the pandemic in Vermont. So, uh, no, I've... I've um, got no issues in general with Republicans, but when they become people like Mitch McConnell and really are just siding with the um, 1% on every, every issue and are so beholden to the corporations, uh, I mean, transnational corporations, not national corporations, but transnational corporations, um, one gets appalled by it. You know, I'm not, I'm not against capitalism. I'm not really... Uh, you know, somebody that would be out there screaming, uh, man the barricades, um, socialism forever. That's not me. Um, I've always admired entrepreneurial capitalism uh, in its most basic ways, as long as it's um, governed by a huge public sense, a sense of the public thing. Well, so you, you know, are a Vermonter. Now, you mentioned socialism. You mentioned capitalism. Uh, Bernie Sanders, where do you stand on, on Bernie? Well, Bernie, Bernie is a very old friend of mine. Um, I, I campaigned for him when he ran for mayor of Burlington 45 years ago. I uh, went around distributing leaflets, and I was part of his uh, – he considered me one of his, like, kitchen cabinet. I'd turn up to, on a Sunday to Bernie's house and sit in his kitchen and, and, and have a coffee and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a sticky bun and <laughs> talk to him about politics. Uh, when Bernie first ran for uh, Congress in, in uh, I mean, 30 years ago, whatever – um, my wife, Devon, and I held one of his first big fundraisers at our farmhouse here in Vermont. Uh, I've been um, a massive supporter of Bernie Sanders, and I voted for him uh, this time around very, very enthusiastically. So, no, I've been – Bernie Sanders is, a, is a, I consider him a personal friend, not a close friend, but somebody that if I see him on the street, I say, hey, Bernie, hey, Jay, how you doing? So we would talk. We see each other on the street. So Vermont's a small state. We know our politicians. We see them. 
we talked to them about things. Um, so yeah, I was all for Bernie Sanders. Um, and so when Bernie didn't win, uh, I didn't get angry. I just said, okay, the people seem to prefer Joe Biden. I've never disliked Joe Biden. And I'm very happy to change my allegiance uh, to Joe Biden from Bernie. I'm one of those people. Well, I think that's wise. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that uh, that uh, evolution of thought in a way for others who don't know how to get there. Uh, it is in the best interest of, of, you know, the big picture for our country. Uh, you know, we, we do not Absolutely. want, you know, but I, I you know, do then Bernie, Bernie himself doesn't want, doesn't want Trump to win. That's his primary goal. Right. And so Bernie is doing everything he can right now to support the, the mainstream party because it has to happen. No matter what happens, we've got to get a, you can't have uh, Trump in there again, appointing Supreme Court justices. I mean, the outrage of, of Neil Gorsuch and, uh, you know, the whole thing is just beyond it pale. Is, it is, it is. Uh, and, and it is about, you know, you have idealism and you have pragmatism. Um, you have to pursue your ideals, but you also have to be realistic. Uh, Absolutely. I, now, do you think then Bernie has been mis, uh, I guess, represented, misunderstood with regard to being a socialist? You, you mentioned how you, socialism is not your favorite thing, though you support him. Uh is he not understood correctly by, is he, or has the, the powers that be uh, effectively framed him in a way that most Americans, you know, would not like as a socialist? I mean, I, I, I have always felt that Bernie has been mischaracterized as a socialist. Now, it's partly his own damn fault because he doesn't really talk about it very clearly or very openly. But, I mean, Bernie has always been a strong supporter of entrepreneurial businesses in Vermont, for example. And uh, Bernie, Bernie uh, is not for collectivization of anything. Uh, Bernie, um, is, it's a, he has a very complex democratic view of socialism. And by socialism, I think he just means Bernie is a socialist in the sense that a Danish politician is a socialist or a Swedish politician. You know, that's a very different thing from, say, a Cuban or uh, or the old-fashioned Soviet-style socialism, or, or, or Chinese socialism, which is, you know, communism. There's such huge distinctions here. Uh, uh, you know, democratic socialism in the, on the Scandinavian model, which is what I've talked to Bernie about, and what, which is what he supports, is very much a, a, a kind of capitalist-based socialism. You know, the, the, the terms are very inadequate to describe the, the realities on the ground. I mean, no one is suggesting getting rid of private companies or, or business entrepreneurialism. No, no. Well, that, that, thank you for clarify, clarifying that. Now, let's let's shift gears a bit. I, I know you're excited about a new book coming out in August. Uh, again, it's yes. it's titled Borges and Me, An Encounter. Uh, you want yes. to and it, it, the title plays off of, uh, one of one of Borges' great stories, Borges and I. Um, Jorge Luis Borges is... One of the greatest writers of the 20th century. I'd say he's one of the five greatest writers of the 20th century. He's up there with Samuel Beckett, Vladimir Nabokov, James Joyce. He's one of the great, true greats. And in his fiction and some of his poetry, especially his, his fictions, he called them fictions, uh, he really transformed, uh, I'd say he transformed the emotional and mental and imaginative landscape of the 20th century with these groundbreaking stories. He's one of our, so simply put, he's one of the most innovative, um, brilliant uh, writers who ever lived. Um, when I, I, I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, 
And um, in the 19, in 1970, as I graduated from college, 68 actually, um, I went to Scotland for the first time because I was I was having some troubles with my draft board, and I want and I was hating the Vietnam War so much. I just wanted to get out of the country, so I, I enrolled in the University of St Andrews, and I wound up pretty much staying there. I came back briefly in 1969-70, and then I went back for five more years in in Scotland. And so uh, during this time, I was I would get letters every month or two from my draft board, which I would which I would not open. I finally burned them, <laughs> and um, and um, so I don't know if I was drafted or not, but I never found out. And um, and and I and in many but I was passionately against the, the Vietnam War. Um, you know the the the, the the My Lai massacre had occurred when I was, you know, you know, 20 years old, and I was so, so deeply disturbed by the idea of, of American power and money burning peasants and shooting 500 um, civilians, women, children, babies in a ditch. And I don't think that was an isolated incident during that war. Yeah. So I was just truly horrified by, by the situation there. And um, I went to Scotland and. Um, and enrolled in the University of St. Andrews and started my work uh, toward a bachelor's degree in philosophy and a PhD in English, which I finally got. And um, um, and, and during this time, one of my tutors introduced me to a, the great Scottish poet, Alastair Reid, who took me on and I became his, sort of, he was my mentor. And I, I was really devoted to him and I would pedal out to his cottage by the sea every day in the afternoon I'd, for tea. And I would bring a poem, and Alistair would sit down and, as he said, correct my poem. And he'd cross out words and move stanzas around, and and sometimes just crumple up my page and throw it in the in the fire. So uh, he was a ferocious teacher. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a ferocious man, but a marvelous man. One of my closest friends of my entire life, Alistair Reed, till his death at nearly 90 a few years ago. Um, but Alistair was translating at the time. Uh, both Pablo Neruda, the great Chilean mm-hmm. Nobel Prize winner, and he was translating the stories and poems of Jorge Luis Borges. In fact, he introduced me to both Neruda and Borges at the time. And uh, I'll never forget, Borges came to work in the winter of 7071 with Alistair in, in, in Scotland on some translations of some new work. And at one point, Al- Alistair introduced me to Borges. Uh, frankly, I had, you know, I was ignorant in those days, and I really didn't had never even heard of Borges, never read a word of this. Alistair scolded me and wagged a finger, saying, "Oh, you, you know, this is really horrendous that you don't know who Borges even is." And I and I didn't. And Borges was this fragile, old, blind man. And at one point, and then I got a phone call from Alistair saying, "Jay, um, uh, an uncle of mine's had a stroke in London. I've got to go with my son. He lived only with a son. There was no wife in the picture." And he said, "Could you possibly babysit Borges for a week?" I said, oh, my God, he's blind, and uh, how do I do that? He said, you'll figure it out, and he left me with, with Borges. <laughs> and, and I had this, I had just bought this for 300 pounds, that's like four or $500, I had bought with a friend, we shared the price, a 1957 rust bucket, a Morris Minor, and that uh, was called. Um, and uh, I drove out to the cottage and went, moved in, and Borges said, oh, I understand you've got this marvelous vehicle. Alistair has told me you bought this vehicle. And he, I took him out and showed it to him, and he bang hit hit it with his hand and cane. And he said, he said, marvelous. He said, well, then you will take me on a tour of the Highlands. I've always wanted to see the Highlands. I said, see the Highlands, Borges, but you're blind. He said, oh no, Jay, don't tell me you're blind as well. <laughs> I said, no, I'm perfectly sighted. And he said, good, you will be my eyes. 
He said, we'll take off tomorrow morning, first thing, and I will pay all the hotels and all the meals. He said, don't worry, I won't stretch your budget. I'm very rich. <laughs> so, so old Borges and I took off for the highlands of Scotland, and we traveled out to uh, – he had, he had things in mind. He wanted to visit the birthplace of, uh, of, of Alexander Selkirk, who was the model for Robinson Crusoe. He wanted to go up and see the first Carnegie Library because he was himself had been the national librarian of Argentina and was a great admirer of the Carnegie Libraries. We went there. He wanted to go see Scone Palace, Scone Palace, where Macbeth had been crowned. Uh, he wanted to go up to uh, through the highlands, through the Cairngorm Mountains, to Inverness, where he planned to meet. There was an, a, a translator of Anglo-Saxon riddles. Um, that he wanted to meet and so he had a plan to meet him and so I took him on this little tour the main goal was meeting this man in Inverness who translated the Anglo-Saxon riddles and um, so it was a kind of a madcap journey and so um, I've always been telling these stories my wife remembers the first date I took her on and this is in the mid 1970s shall we tell you I hate to say um, <laughs> Uh, I'm very old uh, now, and um, so I took. I told her the story of, uh, you won't believe what I did a few years ago, I told her the whole de de detail, the stories of my travels in the Highlands for a week with Jorge Luis Borges. And then um, I was been telling those these stories to friends for years, and I was on the film set of, um, of this movie I made two and a half years ago about Gore Vidal. I wrote the script, and I was on this film set the whole time, Kevin Spacey played Gore Vidal. Michael Stuhlbarg played his partner, and um, uh, and I was sitting and, and I was sitting as it always happens on movie sets. People visit the set, and um, I was sitting with the producer of this film, Andy Patterson, who's great film producer, girl with pearl earring, the railway man, mm -hmm. and so forth, and um, and uh, and Ross Clark, the English director who did the bird, the Birdcatcher, and other movies. And uh, Ross was visiting for a few days. And Ross happened to just, we were sitting having lunch, and I was sitting, Kevin Spacey was there, and uh, Ross pulled out the stories of, um, of Borges, just, just by chance, he was rooting through his bag, and, he, and he, he dropped the book on the table, and I said, do you read Borges? He said, read Borges? He's the only writer I can read. I read him, I've been reading him for years, obsessively, and everybody started talking about Borges and how great he was. I said, well, listen, I can tell you all a funny story. And I told the story, I just told you how I took Borges on a tour of the Highlands of Scotland when I was a 22-year-old kid. And Borges was in his 70s and blind. And they all looked at me with amazement. And Ross said, holy shit. Jay. That's my next movie. <laughs> I, said, I said, really? He said, Jay, that's like a perfect road trip movie. Young man, old man, American on fleeing the Vietnam War old blind man rambling along teaching him about life and and because and I told him all these things Borges said to me and I said well listen let me go see what I can do with if I can come up with anything I, I, I don't want to just launch into this so uh, when I went back to uh, my my house there in Italy and then I started writing and then I kept writing when I got back to the States and and within seven eight months I had written this nearly uh, 250 page book a memoir of my travels with Borges. And uh, it was kind of wild. I was remembering all these conversations. And of course, it's almost a novel because I'm doing scenes and I'm kind of making up conversations based on memories. So um, it was, to me, fascinating. And, uh, and I sent it to Ross Clark and Andy, and they immediately said, yes, this is a movie. So they, um, 
optioned the book, and uh, and great. and I I co-wrote the script with um, with the two of them, um, and we've been working on that. Really, we just finished the final version of it to go out the casting um, uh, only last week. In fact, congratulations so, and, and good luck, yeah. buona fortuna. Yeah, thank you. I you have uh, also already the last station under your belt based on one of your books uh, about yeah, that last book was a script was a, was a movie based on my novel about the last days of leo tolstoy yeah a great book by the way and a great movie uh and the 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 film about gore vidal i know there were some problems with whatever i won't get into that oh, God. yeah we finished the beautiful film i think a beautiful beautiful film uh about gore and it's really about my coming to Italy and meeting Gore and, and, and various complications that arose and so forth. And it's kind of a charming story and powerful story in some ways, I think. <laughs> and um, uh, I co-wrote the script with uh, Michael Hoffman, the director, and Andy Patterson, the producer. Is it available yet? No. This is a, no, eventually it will be, I hope. But um, we finished it, and we, we were just in the process of editing in London. When Kevin Spacey's um, situation turned uh, went south, and Kevin got accused of um, sexual um, things, improprieties, and so forth, and uh, all sorts of the ter ter terrible things happened to Kevin Spacey, and um, and Netflix, who had been financing the film, uh, said, "Let's just put this on hold for the time being." So uh, that's where it sits on hold. Until uh, we figure out what to do with the film, I mean, I do think eventually it'll get released. Um, if Netflix doesn't run it, we'll probably just get some distributor, um, probably starting in Europe to distribute it. So, um, but it'll have to wait for a bit. I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm, I'm, I'm very. Uh, I've known about it for a couple of years now. Given our conversations, I can't wait to see it. You, Jay, what a life you're living! What a life you're living! You know, hanging out with Borges and Gord Vidal, and I mean how much that has uh, informed your your poetry your sense of self because you're a relatively young man these guys are giants in many regards and it, it helps i think it helped you become a pretty significant uh artist and and person uh that uh, uh i'm totally impressed with and and uh, i love i love to hear the the uh the stories and and uh, I, I i presume you have some sage uh, insights to share too, uh, given what you've experienced from those individuals and just being around long enough. When you look at where we are today, you know, we're just about out of time with our conversation this go around. Uh, we're, we're talking about a pandemic, we're talking about this crazy person in, in the White House and so many other things. Where, where, where do we go from here, Jay Perini? Uh, I think we're at an inflection point in American history. And I think we either go totally south and this becomes almost a kind of fascist country um, or, 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 or a place of such chaos that we become a kind of minor uh, player in the world scene. We've already lost our footing internationally. Or American um, self-worth is restored and we return to the origins of American democracy. Um, we reread the uh, Federalist Papers. Uh, we see with the great founding fathers, you know, John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, uh, and so forth, had in mind when they uh, fashioned the, this marvelous thing called the U.S. Constitution. And we return to our origins, and we understand our 
the true roots of democracy, and we become a more liberal nation, liberal in the sense of true freedom, which doesn't mean freedom just for the 1%, but it means that everybody gets to participate in the public thing. We become Republicans in the deepest meaning of that term. Uh, that's, and that's what I think is going to happen. I think that in many ways, uh, Trump and the pandemic uh, were necessary, horrendous moments that had to happen to wrench this country, which has drifted over the last three, four, five decades, way too far from its origins and meaning. Uh, it's, it had, and I mean, I think we did have a sense of purpose when Franklin Roosevelt was president, and he was the last truly great president. We've only had Lincoln Roosevelt, two great presidents. And I think, you know, um, maybe maybe a brief flare-up of optimism with Kennedy. And otherwise, and Obama did a reasonably good job. But really, it's been a long time coming, this kind of surge toward freedom in the sense of liberal freedom. And I think that's what I hope. That's my hope. And that's all we can ever do is, is cross our fingers and hope and pray. And if, if things go well, um, I think that there's an, an optimistic... Uh, future lying before us. Jay Perini, thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And folks, if you don't know who Jay is, I, uh, you should look into it. I know a lot of you do, uh, but uh, for those of you uh, who need to check out some of his works, again, he has a new book coming out, a memoir, Borges and Me, An Encounter. And uh, check out his website, very easy to find for all the other great works that he has out there, his poetry, uh, his films, uh, and, and such. Thank you so much, Jay, for being on the show. Always good to talk, and, and until next time. Until next time. Ciao. Okay. Ciao. Bye-bye. I've got these crazy laughs.
Mode. A long time ago, I was an aspiring medievalist. A medievalist, as you surely learned at your mother's knee, is an academic who specializes in the Middle Ages. In my case, my subspecialty was English literature, from Anglo-Saxon times until Chaucer. Beowulf? The Miller's Tale? Ring any bells? One has a monster in it, and the other a cuckolded old man. I assume students are still plodding through Beowulf and still surprised by their laughter at the Miller's Tale. Yes, there are carpenters, electricians, doctors, nurses, lumberjacks, fry cooks, and librarians, and then there are medievalists. I never became a full-fledged medievalist. I didn't know Latin, which was a requirement, and I realized I didn't want to spend the rest of my life reading the Bible, also a necessity or burrowing away semester after semester in library basements, bleary-eyed from reading too many dusty journals, my waking mind mainly in the Middle Ages. But before I left the land of stalwart knights and randy monks and saucy maidens and puckish peasants, I made a major discovery in the field, a breakthrough. Indeed, I could have been a contender, although, unlike Marlon Brando in On the Waterfront, my prize was not a shot at the title and glory in the ring, but an article in a journal read by a handful of wheezing, balding scholars, no less combative than boxers, but much less steady on their feet. That article could have been my ticket out of an academic Palookaville. I could have been somebody. My Eureka was the meaning of a word in the old English poem, The Battle of Malden. If you're not familiar with it, and really, why should you be? The poem recounts a battle in England in 991 between the local army of Essex and a band of Vikings. At one point in the poem, the leader of the army, Burtnoth, is called out, so to speak, for his Ophermode. He made the mistake of allowing the Vikings to cross from an island to the mainland, with disastrous results. The word was usually defined as great pride, or overconfidence, and seen as a weakness in the leader, a trait which ultimately leads to the loss of the battle. Debate raged for years on the exact meaning of the word. Raged in a mild, muted, academic way, of course. What is this thing called Ophermode? Was it a fault? A virtue? Something else? Well, I came along and cracked the case in a course in Old English in graduate school. I wrote a paper on Ophermode, and my professor said he had never seen an argument like mine, and I should publish the paper, or he'd steal the idea. He was kidding about the theft, I think. He was a tall, mad monkish-looking fellow with a frizzy, receding hair and a dry sense of humor. I've noticed that professors often look like their specialties, 
like dog owners who resemble their canines' breeds. A mutton-chopped romantic, for example, or a pinched-faced Puritan, or wild-eyed purveyor of Irish literature. My old English professor, in addition to looking the part, was one of those teachers who bring literature alive right there in the classroom. Armies battled beneath the fluorescent lights. A lonely seafarer lamented his hard life from an old wooden podium. So there I was, with my Ophermode paper, primed for academic success. Publication in an esteemed journal of medieval studies, followed by a slim book, a teaching position, another groundbreaking article, the brass ring of tenure, conferences in semi-exotic locales, micro-celebrity among brass young scholars in the field. There goes the Ophermode guy. I thought he would be taller. Well-earned sabbaticals, summer research trips abroad, a tweedy, serene life in the groves of academe. And then one night, after a quiet drink at the campus pub, I toddle home, lay my distinguished gray head on the pillow, and join the Vikings in the realm of the dead. It was not to be, as my mother would say. I never published the paper. I bid a dry-eyed farewell to Beowulf and Chaucer, and my inside on Ophermode moldered in typescript in a cardboard box until the box was tossed or misplaced or lost in a move. And here's the thing. I can't remember what I said in the paper. How could I have forgotten such a once-important thought, an open sesame to an alternative life, maybe a better life than the one I lived? Maybe not. Down the memory hole Ophermode went, along with the flotsam and jetsam of decades of being. We can only remember so much, after all. No doubt other ambitious medievalists have come to a similar conclusion as I did a lifetime ago. I hope they're happy. Goodbye, Ophermode. Goodbye, Burtnoth, you poor maligned bastard. You were only trying to do your best, like the rest of us. Never
Chain gang operator sunshine. The window pane reflects the corners sharp and the walls uneven, so sublime, to the point that one feels settled with endless empathy, having witnessed for a moment the movement pulling the strings behind the curtain. As the purple hue of lilac perfume wafts in windswept whispers sweetly, through the open window. Just a little loving Early in the morning Beats a cup of coffee For starting off the day Just a little loving Yawning makes you wake up feeling good things are coming your way. This old world wouldn't be half as bad. It wouldn't be half as sad if each and everybody in it had just a little loving early in the morning. A little extra something to kind of see them through. Nothing turns the day on, really gets it done in. Like a little bit of loving from some loving or someone like And there you have it, episode 372 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum DeBure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, a good friend of the program, the great Jay Perini, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavese, and these musical artists, 
Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, War, Bob Marley and the Whalers, Leon Redbone, Carl Blau, Carmen McRae, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And I'd like to thank you for listening. We also would like to give our compassion and strength to the family of George Floyd and all of us who are feeling the the pain and the confusion of what the heck is going on out there. 